Malcolm Holmline is in Israel on this Erev Shabbos Parshas Truma. It is Rosh Chodesh Adar, and candle lighting here is at 516. Right now, 4 degrees with a wind chill of minus 13. What's the weather like in Israel? We'll ask Malcolm. Uh, he is the um, executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us each Friday for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Malcolm Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's great to be with you from sunny Jerusalem. Sunny Jerusalem. About 12 hours ago at a wedding, someone walked over to me with a telephone and showed me photos they had just gotten of a snow-covered Jerusalem. And this morning I heard on the news about these road closures in Jerusalem. Malcolm, what's the real story? Is there snow in the holy city? Doesn't it just tell you how the media distorts reality? And <laughs> you can't it. believe what you hear. I love well, it. Well, the truth is that there was a snowstorm yesterday. It, it, it started much later than anybody predicted. They closed the roads already in the afternoon uh, because, you know, uh, one, the, the, the roads are very hilly in the mountainous uh, areas around here. And uh, second, that people don't know how to drive in, in snow. <laughs> and uh, they have plows out. They, this, the truth is now that it is beautiful here. It's sunny. It's still, the, the streets are still covered with snow, but it's melting. Uh, and, and I'm telling you that it's sunny. Let me clarify a couple of things, uh, folks, that, uh, that, that might sound like I'm correcting Malcolm. He said the plows are out. I think he meant the plow is out. I think that's what he meant. Cause I think there's one or maybe two. No, not cow. Plow. <laughs> I know, I'm saying. <laughs> there may not be more but than they one. They have many. I, I saw know. three or four right on one corner at one time. <laughs> That actually makes sense. That actually makes sense that they would gather them all together in one spot. They were making a minion, I think. At, uh, at the, you know, uh, you know me. The they were out as soon as the snow, the snow fell very suddenly. It was like uh, hail. And in literally in minutes, the streets were covered. And then there was a lighter, uh, a lighter snow uh, fall. And it accumulated, I think, four or five inches at least. All right. Well, if anybody wants to hear my routine about the snow removal in Jerusalem, you can go back to the archive from the big blizzard in Jerusalem. That One of the most interesting analyses ever, if you ask me. All right. A lot going on. Did the conference group, the conference of presidents group, have an address by the prime minister? Has the, has the prime minister been too busy campaigning? No. The prime minister made time for us. He came, as promised, Monday night. We had a dinner, and he addressed it. Um, gave a very strong address, and essentially he said why I'm going, where I'm going, and why now am I going. And, and that's he it. the case about what, why the urgency, why to Washington, and why to Congress. It's 100%. A couple of weeks ago we were at 70 or 80%. This is it. He's going at this point, right? As of now, he's going. And I don't know if you saw that Chuck Schumer came out. Others have said that people should be there. I hope that the administration will say the same and will, uh, even if not encourage, at least let it be clear that the, that Democrats should feel free to go. Uh, I know that there were a few who did not acknowledge, um, who, who didn't uh, yet come out clearly uh, about their intention, a few who did come out clearly, maybe 15 
who have said that they would not participate. I hope they change their mind. Well, it's been a while since Iran has been topic one in our conversations, but since we're already on it, let's continue with it. Um, On top of this news, that it's much more likely now that the Prime Minister will be addressing the Iran issue to a joint session of Congress on March 3rd. In addition to that, this week we learn, and we turn to you for the accuracy or inaccuracy of this, this week we learn that the United States is not briefing Israel on talks with Iran. Do they normally do so? And if yes, why the change? I'm sorry, the change in what? If they, Do they normally uh, brief Israel on their talks with Iran? Oh, brief. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. So, the, the, yes, they have been briefing Israel all along, and they have made it very public that they've been briefing Israel all along. The, the And that, according to White House officials that we met this week and others, is continuing. The question is, what is the quality of the briefing? Uh, Yossi Cohen, the National Security Advisor, was in Washington. Phil Gordon from the White House was in Israel. Uh, there were other uh, exchanges going on by phone. Uh, I think that um, the question that, that uh, has come up, and, and you've seen statements from some in the administration or spokespeople saying, well, Israel distorts what, what, what's the information they get or misrepresents the, the nature of the talks or leaks information. The, and so they may not be giving them up-to-date details on some aspects of the negotiations, which would be unfortunate. And I think the the uh, wanted information sharing has come under question in, in the last week. Um, what is the um, how do these rumors start <laughs> when when we start reading articles in newspapers that Israel's not being briefed or not being briefed enough, as you put it, uh, on the Iran situation? I mean, you know, we we sort of like to think that when there where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, how, how does this how does how does this type of story get out there? That's a very good question, and, the, and from which side does it get out there? Right. Are administration people trying to stick to Israel and to say and give warnings to the administration from the administration that they will diminish the level of information sharing? Or is it Israelis who are trying to send a message that we're not getting information? And, and Or there could be sideline players who have an interest in increasing the tensions. So it can come from a variety of sources. It's not quite clear here. The various spokespeople have addressed the issue from uh, the American side. I don't know that anybody officially has addressed it here. Right. Um, and in general, is there any type of... Uh, uh, let me put it differently. ISIS, essentially, aside from the weather, I and I'm being serious about that, because it seems like the weather leads every national newscast now, um, aside from the weather, ISIS is dominating the news. Iran likes that. Iran likes when everyone is distracted by some other uh, rogue regime or murderous group that's dominating the headlines. Well, I think they like it on a number of levels. One is when attention is diverted from Iran, they move ahead. If you look at the statements that Rouhani has made, <coughs> I'm sorry, just in the last week about the progress, they said Iran. He said that Iran is. Um, speeding up uh, their progress in the nuclear program and nuclear field uh, and the, the negotiations this is these are his words received so much attraction and you and cry that they overshadowed these activities we are running at a higher speed so on that level they're very happy when they see um, the, the attention diverted and there are actual practical implications of, of these words when we see the the um, surface-to-surface missile 
uh, developments that they have, the new transporter erector launchers, the TELS for the Shahab-3 missile. The, I know these are very technical, but these are significant when you have a multiple reentry vehicles and, and better GPS guidance systems for their, their missiles. All of these developed in, in the time while everybody's focused on the negotiations, they're focused on, on, on moving ahead. That's one level. The second uh, level is that the, the emphasis on ISIS, where they try to portray, and others try to portray this as a common interest of the United States and Israel and uh, Iran uh, to fight ISIS, and therefore they are cooperating in Iraq, what, which really means that we're turning over the keys to Iraq to Iran, and they are investing a billion dollars there. They have 130,000 Shiite militia, and the Iraqi army itself is only about 40,000 guys who are poorly armed. So we're seeing the uh, transformation of Iraq into a, an Iranian subsidiary, and the the fact that you know we're bombing the United States coalition and Iran is bombing, and that the the uh, that there is indirect or direct uh, coordination. Uh, works to their benefit, and they say, "Look, we're an ally. You need us. We we can cooperate together. Let's get the nuclear thing out of the way." I hope that will not be the the case. That the the Iran's nuclear aspirations are only meant to reinforce and expand the capacity that they have to mm-hmm. create damage to counter Western, the local, and and interests of every one of our allies uh, in in the region and way beyond the region. So. Um, and, and we see the aggressiveness of Iran uh, in Sudan, as in Yemen, as in other places, uh, Iraq, of course, in Syria and Lebanon, but also around Israel. And as the Prime Minister pointed out in his remarks, they're there on three sides, Gaza with Hamas, Lebanon and Hezbollah, and now in the Golan. And uh, they're encircling Israel, but they're encircling the whole region as well. You know, this is a very important point that he, and not that I'm advising the Prime Minister, but he should keep this in mind for March 3rd. The bulk of his speech, every of his speeches, each time he's addressed the Iran issue at the UN or in Congress, has been about their capabilities in terms of uh, nuclear weapons and how close they are, etc., etc. I'm not minimizing the importance of that message. But what you just said in terms of geographically, the way they're spreading out, taking over, and having this influence in so many other the countries that might be a very important point for him to make there i think it's it it, it will be part of his thing it's a presentation at least i expect that he will present what is the danger iran represents not just to israel uh, you know iran the term i think he used was rampaging right. in the region and and the fact is that they are making progress on on um, on every front virtually and the growing acceptance of Assad or the belief that he will retain, you know, some area would be a victory for them. Hezbollah and the Syrian army and IRGC uh, agents uh, are trying to deal with the uh, rebels in, in, in Golan, putting themselves there. Uh, they want to put thousands of Hezbollah uh, guys on the borders of, uh, of Israel and Jordan. The IRGC and the Al-Quds brigades uh, are outside of Dara in southern Syria, which is very near the border uh, of Israel. There's been heavy fighting uh, going on there. So Iran, it's uh, the Al-Quds commander, Soleimani, a name everybody should by now know from this show, uh, uh, talk about exporting the Islamic revolution throughout the region. I mean, they're saying it all. And 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 they talk from, and and listen, he he gives the, the dimension, he said, from Bahrain to Iraq to Syria to Yemen to North Africa. 
We and, just don't listen. They're telling us what they're doing. And I'm and not to nitpick on a detail, but the economic situation in Iran doesn't help prevent them from doing it. It doesn't slow them down. We've been that's not nitpicking. That's exactly a very good point. And you would think that with all the sanctions and with the dropping of oil prices, etc. Right, the oil. That, right. that they would not have the funds. And the truth is that they divert the funds. They don't take care of the people. I had an opportunity to meet people who came out of Iran when we were in Vienna last week. Uh, in fact, just after the broadcast, we met with people who, who literally just came out to Vienna. And they told us how, how much impact the sanctions are, in fact, having on people, but that the government itself doesn't suffer. You know, they can divert the monies that they have. They still are selling oil, even though it's a reduced amount and obviously at a reduced price. And they, the relief, the sanctions relief that they have gotten so far has helped the, the economy. So, you know, they are diverting the funds from um, from what would normally normal countries would do in investing in the people and then the infrastructure of the country right. to their military adventurism. Right. So the sanctions and even the drop in oil prices only has a small effect. On this operation, for this they'll find the money. That's that's yeah. But but Nachum, it's it, it, it. You have to think in the other side, which is why the sanctions are so important. If they didn't have the sanctions, right. and if they had the additional income, think of how much more damage they would be. Doing. Oh yeah, I'm not minimizing that 100. percent I I just am saying that when it comes to this, uh, they're going to make sure they have the money that they need in order to carry it out. That's their priority. Much more, right. much more than building the country, supporting the people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And what we saw on another front is this attempt to reconcile between Hamas and Iran. Mashal met with Soleimani in July in uh, in Turkey after the Gaza War, but now they're talking about uh, uh, UN reports about uh, about the alarming rate at which they are being uh, reweaponized in in Gaza and tunnels being built and the missile tests. This is coming from a UN report. Mm. So you know you can multiply it by several fold, the the um, and that the uh, rapprochement between them was set back a little bit because I think they were demanding that Mashal step down. But in any event, what we're seeing is Hamas seeking to rebuild its ties uh, with Iran and to to get arms and further support for their expanding military capacity. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org. A special greeting to those tuned in on the NSN app from anywhere around the world. Malcolm Holmline is in Jerusalem. He's the executive vice president of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Uh, Let's go to uh, what happened this week, uh, ISIS and the beheading of 21 uh, Coptic Christians. Um, You know, I, I I hate to say it like this, but for those of us who wonder about um, public outrage among, you know, freedom-loving people back in the late 1930s and early 1940s. It is unbelievable. With all the reaction in Washington and the discussion about the president and how he's dealing with all this, it, it is unbelievable that we, as free people who, you know, who who um, uh, tend to think that we're out there fighting, you know, for those who are who are suffering, for those who are victims are not raising our voices nearly enough. And I think that whether it's our community or other communities in this country especially, 
Uh, we've got to wake up to this. There, the, 21 people are beheaded like this in this brutal fashion with this unbelievably insane video going around the world, and there's hardly a reaction. So the, the, the fact is the Jewish community has been speaking out. We have been speaking out. We are in touch with Coptic leaders both in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, it is dangerous sometimes for us to do it, not for us, but for them, because then they, it's already painted, readily painted as then, you know, Israel or the Zionists or the, or part of a conspiracy and may endanger them. But frankly, I agree with you. I can't remain silent when we see this, when we see the Yazidis being tortured in the way they are. We, we just met now with a group here that is doing remarkable things. Israelis who go in to help, uh, civilians who go in to help refugees provide aid provide assistance, not non-military assistance, um, to Syrians, to people, in, in, uh, Christians, to cops, to others. The fact that the, the president wouldn't identify them as Christians was, was surprising to many people because they were killed because they were Christians and because, and, and the, the um, uh, ISIS or, or didn't make any secret of it. They, these people were going there for work. And the United Nations, Egypt once has been acting against the the ISIS troops there. They bombed twice last week, and, you know, with the UAE, they have carried out other bombings, which the United States and others opposed, and they want now a UN-led coalition to intercede. I met with a group from Benghazi, and it was horrific what they were telling us, and most of all about the failure of the West to support them. Libya is completely disintegrating, but the growth of IS there, uh, and of Iran's influence there is is very obvious, and we're going to add that after Sudan to the list of countries falling under their dominance, and this is very scary. And what what's especially scary about Libya is that it's it's 300 miles to Sicily from Libya, and the Italians are apoplectic about this, not only because of the flow of people, but the statements made by IS in in Libya that we will conquer Rome, we will break your crosses, we will enslave your women, and this is this is evoking a strong response. People should read the, the, the speech of the new president of Italy, a very courageous and, I thought, very bold uh, uh, speech. But Italy is, is very scared, and then this means all of Europe, because once they get into any part of Europe, they can go anywhere. So, so what happened during Gaddafi's reign? The, the radical Islamists were not able to establish any power or i mean right, because he controlled it you know libya is 147 tribes it's not a real country and you know you need a strong power there centralized power to to keep control of it now unfortunately he was a brutal dictator that's not the kind of things you want to see in, in a place like this but you know this is uh um uh, europeans all along knew italy always had a special relationship with libya Going back many decades, war, etc., and the um, uh, but the, the, the deterioration of the situation there. You know, we're talking about twenty to thirty thousand troops of IS in Syria and Iraq, but also in Afghanistan, Algeria, Egypt, Libya, and by the way, and also presence in countries like Jordan, Yemen, Lebanon, Saudi Arabia. So they have become a regional operation. It's no longer isolated particular areas, and they can send them troops to all of these different areas. They recruit more and more. And, you know, that this week in your question about the brutality, which is so important and so ignored generally, 
in a city called uh, al-Baghdadi this week in Iraq. They burnt 45 Iraqis. 45 were immolated. And you don't see a, a, a response or, or, you know, everybody's still focused that they, they would much rather deal with a house in Israel that they feel was inappropriately built than dealing with the, the deaths of thousands and thousands of people and, and such brutal uh, um, terrorists and, and extremists who, who are being uh, recruited all the time to this horrible cause. It's, you know... Without description, and then, then you see in Iraq signs with billboards proclaiming the prowess of these militias with pictures of Khamenei and Khomeini. Uh, you know, again, underscoring what is happening. You have the two dynamic forces, IS and Iran, both spelling disaster for the region. Without a rational and maybe irrational anger from the leader of the free world. It is going to be very hard to rile everybody up to start thinking about how to win this war against ISIS. It's the, it's the entire West is is mealy mouthed about it. I think that the uh, approach has to be to declare them, and, and I think there have been statements declaring them, uh, you know, as terrorists and beyond the pale, and calling on the countries in the region. I think even the speeches this week. To to uh, go after them and to to identify them, uh, but it's always couched when it, when we identify it as as radical Islam. The fact is that this is the way to fight Islamophobia: is to have it identified for what it is and who it is, rather than not identifying it, and then everybody assumes that it's the entire uh, population. You know, the failure and the unwillingness to name names and shame. And to go after is is only feeds this cancer. This is something that you have to eradicate. It needs the strongest kind of radiation. One by being exposed and being said who it is and and why. When Muslim Brotherhood members are invited to the State Department, as they were a week ago or so, the Egyptians go berserk. And they say, "Here's a terrorist entity, and you are fetting their their representatives." In the, in the United States. So, you know, if this, this has to be dealt with in a comprehensive, serious way where we isolate those responsible and eradicate them, where we, we, we can no longer couch it in, um, in terms that, that somehow this is something we can counter. So you must have, you must, any mistakes till now. You must have been very frustrated when you heard the president addressed the gatherings in Washington this week. I mean, he, and I know that he got a lot of criticism for it, but, you know, he, he refuses to identify who the enemy is. He refuses to use strong language, feels the need to placate, you know, groups at a time, sends representatives out there to encourage us why it's not important to physically, you know, murder these people who are murdering others, or kill these people, I should say, who are murdering others. It's, 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 a, it's a backwards message that's coming out. Well, I was in, in, uh, I was traveling, so I only could read the, the messages and the it's all bits of it on, on the news. Um, I think that in some cases they didn't mention it and, and to talk about it, but it's always it, it doesn't come across as if we are declaring war. Right. All of the West has to declare war right. on, on the terrorists. When we have incidents in, in Paris. 
you see the reaction right away. Bowles makes a great statement. Talan says something. But what fundamentally changes? What what is it that we are doing to to make a difference? And we see them spreading their influence, gaining more territory, uh, claiming more adherence all the time. And you know the rampaging description is not wrong. So what 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 is the world? What is this? Uh, the civilized world, the Western world, uh, those who are supposed to be on the forefront of this doing is the critical question. Statements and do we support our allies? Do we criticize Egypt for bombing after the 21 cops are are killed or beheaded, uh, as they were, or do we do we um, uh, stand with them? What they're doing in the Sinai, for instance, and I'm only picking this one example of of uh, Egypt. They find two two and a half kilometer long tunnels, um, and in Egypt turns to France and to. Russia to buy fighters and other things because they don't want to buy from the United States or the United States is not selling it to them. And yet we are, uh, we're, we're very tough on, on Egypt and on other countries, and yet on the critical parties, we have not demonstrated the same kind of resolve. Yeah, no question. Well, what do you hear in the aftermath of the uh, terrorist attack, attack in Denmark last Saturday night? Well, as you know, the people there... Uh, that they've held some vigils, but this has been in the offing for a long time. It shouldn't have been a surprise. We know the presence of these elements in, in Denmark and the security that has been present at Jewish institutions for a long time. When I was there years ago, I had meetings with the leaders of the community and with government officials about it. Uh, and the, the question now is what are they doing to find out what connections did this guy have, what other what other individuals? I know that they were looking for two supposed accomplices uh, that I've not heard that they have apprehended. Uh, but I have to tell you, when we were in Vienna, the willingness of public officials there now to to describe it as Islamic radicalism or fanaticism and extremism to talk about it in terms very different than what we have heard in in the past, and even going to the OSCE and, and UN agencies and talking about the rise of anti-Semitism and the frustration that many of them feel about the the response to it, the, the real changes that are necessary, legislative, security, all the things. It just can't be an immediate response where policemen surround the building. You know, right as soon as the Denmark thing happened, I mean, literally, I would say in an hour, we had eight policemen added to the security detail that accompanied us. Right. And, you know, it spreads quickly because they know that there's going to be copycats. They know that it's networked around Europe. And the, the um, you know, the failure is is not just the one incident. It's the collective, it's the cumulative failure to address this in a serious way. And now I'm not sure it can be addressed. By the way, even in Denmark, officials are, uh, as the New York Times reported, are reluctant to... Uh uh, d- discuss the connection between that attack and radical Islam. Like everyone's, mm-hmm. af- everyone's afraid to, to even mention the same words in the same sentence. Uh, what do you think of Mayor Giuliani's, uh, assertion that President Obama does not love America? Uh, I don't want to get into that. I, actually, <laughs> I only saw it, uh, yesterday for the first time. Uh, I did not, obviously being away, 
don't have that much access. I mean, you can understand someone from his political standpoint's frustration with Washington. I'm not saying that the statement was a. Well, I thought his statement in support of Netanyahu was was very good. Right. I, I uh, I've heard increasingly people, you know, making comparisons to Chamberlain to right to the 1930s and right. stuff, which something we we had always rejected because you know that that it was a unique period, but. I think people are sensing that there's something happening that is of such a magnitude, and you know that even on the show for more than 10 years and much more. Yeah, we're getting on 20 years already. Right. I talked about it. We warned about it. Yeah. When we could have stopped it, we could have dealt with it. And I don't take any joy in being right. I want to be wrong on these things. I it think was evident what was going to happen. I think it was the mid-'90s where you first told us about... Uh, Islamic fundamental. You didn't call it radical Islam in those days. You called it Islamic fundamentalism. Exactly. And I'm telling you, when I say 20 years, I don't think I'm exaggerating. I assume you. 1988. I gave my first speech on it. 88. Yeah. Wow. I'm assuming you knew Uri Orbach. I did not well, but yes, I encountered him many times. He was an amazing guy, and the tributes to him have been remarkable. And and actually, uh, Bennett. Who heads the party to which Uri Orbach uh, belongs and was a minister uh, and was a very close friend of of his, Naftali Bennett, was actually speaking to the conference when he got the word that he passed away and he gave a very moving, on the spot eulogy to him of him that was uh, really touched everybody. Wow. Uh, Latest polls. You're in Jerusalem and apparently the Zionist Union has taken a slight lead over Likud. One of the reasons, by the way, you know, there's a, I don't know if we call it a scandal at this point, but there's a uh, a brouhaha brewing in Jerusalem about the way that the Prime Minister's house is managed and specifically the expenses that are incurred in the Prime Minister's office and house. Is this a coincidence, Malcolm, less than a month before the election, that a story like this, like this comes out? Oh, no coincidence in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> this, this has been going on for some time. There have been charges about, uh, you know, against the Sarah Netanyahu, against their expenses, and yet when you compare them to expenses of previous, I mean, it, it's, <laughs> it, it, it is not pleasant. It's not nice to watch. I'm sure it's embarrassing overseas when they see charges about, you know, collecting bottle, empty bottles and right. what happens to money. But the fact is that the, the polls are, are vacillating all the time. The Likud was ahead last week. Now, according to three polls, uh, Zionist campus moved ahead. I think Bennett all picked up a seat this experts. week. They're all learning. They have learned. We had a, a session here with these remarkable young people talking about how the Internet is being used in, in campaigns in Israel now and, and their impact and, you know, social media, et cetera, very extensively. They all... Twitter block. Even while they're speaking at the con- at our meetings, <laughs> they were twittering and sending out messages. Uh, it, it's really astonishing for those of us who are not so up to date with all of these things. But the <clears throat> so uh, I think in a month with a month left, almost uh, there will be many more changes in the in the polls. I think it depends on external things. It depends on internal things. And the real question is not who gets necessarily the most votes, as you remember last time, but who right. put together a coalition. I think Bennett got a seat this week in uh, the poll that I saw. He's on the increase. Uh, Baruch Marzal, according to the courts, is back in, for those of us who know him and find him to be an interesting figure. He'll be uh, somewhat of a factor, I guess, in this election now. 
So he's back in. And one of the things I read this week, which caught me a little by surprise, Malcolm, I'm sure you knew this. I never knew it. I didn't realize that there was really almost no debates, formal debates between major candidates during campaigns in Israel. I assume it's the same during this election, right? Right. It's amazing. Our debates by representatives of the parties, uh, they go really local here. I mean, every village, every town, there people are out campaigning. Miri Regev moved into some sort of, uh, I guess, a RV and is traveling from town to place to place. Everybody is out there every night speaking, uh, the prime minister much less so, because it's much more complicated for him to do it, so he has to have more proxy people. Um, and he, of course, is busy still trying to run the country at the same time that all of this is going on. So I wonder- uh, it, it's a fight over very... A few votes, I think, about how it was split. There's still significant undecided uh, that that or, or, or a shift vote that could turn. I, the question is not just what people say to the pollsters. As you know, Israelis are notorious for telling the truth to the pollsters and lying at the polls. That um, uh, you know, when they go into the polling booth, surprisingly, the number one issue is the economy. Yeah, uh, but I think that when they vote, security will still be the dominant concern. You know, we had Stephen Miller on on Monday. He did the poll for Times of Israel that the, the biggest statistic that's been quoted most often is the 78 percent of Israelis who don't trust President Obama on the Iran issue. You know, what was interesting about that that when you is the um, is the comparison to uh, American jury. It, it, it's almost an identical number of those American Jews who do trust. Uh, President Obama on the Iran issue. With Israelis, it's almost 80% who don't. Is, is it all about geography, that the Israelis are simply living in a much more dangerous neighborhood? It's a factor, but uh, there's been a lot of distrust and a lot of the statements that have come out and the characterizations. And, you know, for Israelis, this is a, a life-and-death issue. And, and, and it is not a reflection, by the way, of a lack of support for the United States or identification with the United States. Those numbers remain remarkably, remarkably high, probably the highest in the world, of, uh, you know, liking America, uh, caring for America, etc. Um, it's very uh, directed at the at the uh, president, and that's one of the reasons why this the, the fight doesn't have the resonance that it might have had, let's say, when Clinton, who was much more popular amongst the Israeli people, right. and could appeal directly to the people, whereas President Obama's numbers don't really allow for that. BB's coming to Washington. It looks more and more likely at this point, and the vice president will not be in the room, right? He's made that clear. He's going to South America. Unbelievable. I'll tell you, this is good. I, I, I just hope that this trip happens and, and goes off without any, you know, major disagreements or, uh, anybody, uh, you know, creating an even further political rift due to it. I mean, do you think it has the potential to just sort of, you know, stay on the radar and not go too crazy? Well, we see that there are people who are issuing statements uh, in the United States who want to exploit this against Republicans, against Israel, against, you know, just to, to, to take a, a stand of those who don't want to see America involved in the Iran issue. In Israel, obviously, it would become more and more of a political issue. People say that the prime minister embarrassed Israel, that the prime minister shouldn't never have fallen into the trap. Others who are very strongly urging him to take advantage of the opportunity. You saw uh, people like... Al Dershowitz, many others uh, have weighed in on it in support of the prime ministers, others who have uh, weighed in against it. Right. It's, it's regrettable. I think now that it's happening, it's time for everybody to, to get behind the prime minister's visit. 
they should at least listen to what he has to say, they can comment afterwards, but right now I think uh, once the decision was made, and it's not reversible, I think people should stop the public declarations and should let's wait and hear what he has to say, and most of all support the overwhelming preponderance of positive in the U.S.-Israel relationship, not let this uh, divert attention away from those, and most of all from the common goal we have, which is making sure Iran does not have a nuclear weapon. Yeah, I'm hope I'm hoping that it's a common goal. I hope it's a common goal. Right. We I have hope to make it a common goal. I know we got to fight for it to be a common goal because uh, not everybody in Washington, it seems, uh, understands how common a goal it needs to be. All right, I just got a photo from Jerusalem. Uh, listener Simon sent me a photo from Jerusalem. The way these cars are buried in that one inch of snow, Malcolm, it'll be about a month before someone drives them out. I'm telling you. I didn't say one inch. I said five <laughs> inches, number one. Number no. I'm saying. I can look out my room, see the cars still covered, but I can tell you the snow on the balcony is gone already. Now, my point being, it's not that much snow on the car. It'll still take a month for them to get it out. That's my point. <laughs> but That's... You, you know that people drove up, people came last night because their kids never saw snow and they wanted to see it. They yeah. stay overnight in the hotel just so they could see it. Now the roads are closed. They're still closed, by the way. Right, so they'll be, they'll be in Jerusalem. didn't make it to Jerusalem. We'll spend Shabbos in Tel Aviv or right. someplace else. Or they'll be in Jerusalem for a while at this point. Um, have a wonderful Shabbos in the Holy Land. We will speak uh, from here, Bezrat Hashem, next week. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman, the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. We call it the Weekly Update. Put it in your calendar for every single week. And a special hello to those tuned in on the NSN app from around the world.